Hi, this is Jeff Kober, and we welcome you to this Disney at Play, Disney at Work podcast. This month marks the 20th anniversary of Performance Journeys, the company I founded not long after I left the Walt Disney World Company. In celebration of that event, I wanted to share how my career has tied in with Disney over the decades. Over the next few weeks, we'll be sharing a three-part history of my career to include my years working as a leader for the Walt Disney World organization and my years afterwards establishing performance journeys and sharing Disney best practices around the world. This podcast that you're listening to today is a replay of one I recorded back in June of 2020. Many listeners don't know my backstory, so I thought it'd be well to provide that context again as a preface to the ones I will share later. The thing that is found in all of these decades is a love of Disney that perhaps you can relate to in some way. So without further ado, recognize that um, there's going to be some uh, time dated things that are mentioned. Actually, it's mentioned that it's the 100th podcast, but and I've done about 400 podcasts at this point, but because I was part of a different group of people in the first 30 or so podcasts, those didn't get included or counted. At any rate, long story short, um, it actually ended up being podcast, I think, 128. But you'll hear it today. And then in the subsequent podcast, we're going to talk about my time at Disney and then consequently uh, the events that followed. I hope you find it interesting. I hope that you gain a better understanding of your host as I bring you um, these nearly six decades of my experience with Disney. Hi, this is Jeff Kober and we welcome you to what is our 100th podcast for Disney at Work and Disney at Play. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited to be here and to share with you uh, a little bit about myself, just to kind of set up uh, the the topic for the day. Um, At the beginning of the year, I uh, contracted uh, the consulting uh, insights of an individual who has a very successful uh, podcast out there in the uh, out there in the social media sphere, and he's not. It's not a Disney podcast, but it is very successful. And I asked the individual to just look at my podcasts and my my blogs and everything, and to offer any insights. And one of the key points, one of the big takeaways of that conversation was, Jeff, uh, I can't find anything about you really. I don't know much about you looking at your blogs and your podcasts. And uh, he had a point. I have a bio over in my business uh, websites, uh, Performance Journeys and World Class Benchmarking, but nothing really was part of Disney at Play and Disney at Work. And so I kind of thought, okay, what does that look like? And I didn't want to just do the standard bio about me kind of thing, drop down, 
menu bar thing on uh, on my website. So the first thing I did was to do a sort of introductory video about me um, and to kind of share a little bit about kind of where I'm coming from, what matters most and and what I'm all about. So to begin with, let me play that video. You're not going to be able to see my office unless you, you, you watch the video, but hopefully you can get a sense of uh, the narrative of that piece. Hi, I'm Jeff Kober, your host for Disney at Play and DisneyAtWork.com. I decided rather than doing the traditional bio on your website, that perhaps it'd be better to introduce me by, well, taking a tour of my office. Here, uh, you see, well, true to any office, you don't get very far before you get to the family photos. And families really, aren't they the center of so much of our Disney experiences and memories? For me personally, my earliest recollection of my father was walking me down Main Street, USA at Disneyland after the fireworks. I still remember that evening, chilly, crisp, and full of love. I think in my work, relationships matter, and probably it does in yours as well. And so we try to build that into our websites and our podcasts and, and everything that we do. Let me show you another couple of parts of my office. Well, every office has a bookshelf and I am as guilty as any. I have business books and books that are filled with inspiration. Of course, if you love all things Disney, you have a lot of books about Disney. My first one, well, let me tell this story about it. When I was in fourth grade, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and it was a rainy day. So rather than go out to the playground, I went to the library and I found this box filled with old National Geographics. And as I went through it, I found a magazine about the wonderful, magical worlds of Walt Disney. Oh, it was amazing. It was filled with pictures and illustrations of the parks, animation, even a fold-out map of Disneyland. I I couldn't believe how amazing this, this magazine was. I came back several days afterwards reading at every lunch hour. Finally, I got the courage to go to the library and thank you, librarian. She actually gave me the copy, which I have today. It's, it's pretty worn after all of these years, but um, I still cherish it as the very first thing I ever had. What a blessing it has been to live the last 27 years here in Orlando, Florida, and to be part of the magic. To include having worked with the Disney Institute, here are some of my books and curriculum that I developed um, for the Disney Institute, where we taught people best practices and customer service and leadership. Uh, I cherish the experience I had at Disney. And after I left it, I thought, well, Somebody's got to continue sharing those stories and writing about it. So the books that sit on my desk, well, they're the ones I've written. And I love those too, because I really have poured my heart and soul. The first one was The Wonderful World of Customer Service at Disney. And it just outlines great business practices in terms of customer service and what it looks in, like in the Disney parks. Then I got writing on this book on Disney's Hollywood Studios. From showbiz to your biz, I love the stories of the studio. I love the stories of this park. 
So I wrote that one and then most recently wrote Disney Leadership and You. Um, I love these books and books have given me a way and an opportunity to share these ideas with others. Let me share with you one more thing. Well, as you can see, I love maps. I've been collecting them all my life from different parks throughout the entire world. I even collected these little Disneyland guides when I was a kid and I would just study the pages that showed all the different attractions and shops and so forth. I think that maps are a little bit of an analogy to my own career because I love to help go into organizations and map out a success plan for their own uh, excellence, whether it's helping their leadership or engaging their employees or, or simply building a, a great customer brand. Uh, even my organization, Performance Journeys, is two words uh, rec uh, symbolized by uh, the icon, which if you study it carefully, is from the timekeeper. And it's part compass and it's part clock, representing the clock portion, setting goals and accomplishing milestones, and then the other portion representing really becoming your best self and, and building relationships around you. That's what I love to do with organizations. And, and well, when you come and visit my sites, disneyatplay.com, you'll find this kind of Disney fandom where we talk about our love of all things Disney. And when you visit disneyatwork.com, you'll see that we have best in business ideas from the happiest place on earth to help you and your organization. So please visit us, check us out and see the magic that you can bring at home or to your own place of work. Again, you can kind of see my maps and my office and everything I'm referencing when you take a look at the video uh, on my website. And when our notes page, I've added a whole bunch of photos about myself and um, some links and so forth. So be sure to check out uh, my notes page. This podcast is really about six decades of Disney and how my life has somehow magically interwoven through an experience uh, with Disney and what that is all about. And um, by the way, I just want to say not quite six decades. It's actually a few years short of that, but I feel, I thought I might as well just round up at this point and call it six decades. It, um, it does begin with the stories I shared just a few minutes ago in that video, but I want to build off of it. I talked a little bit about maps and I talked a little bit about that National Geographic article that, um, that I had found in the library. A key piece of that magazine article was a fold-out map of Disneyland, which fascinated me to no end. It wasn't particularly the most accurate map at the time, at least by that moment, because Disneyland had evolved. I had created a new Tomorrowland and so forth by the time I, uh, I had picked up a copy of that. But, um, but it, was, um, it was very much uh, worthy of study. That same year, and I believe it was fourth grade, there was a social studies project that you had to do. And I'm trying to figure out what that was going to look like. And somehow I thought, well, why not do it on Disney? So if you can imagine, you know, the three uh, fold cut out of 
cut out board and so forth and I had drawn some pictures I had drawn a picture of Walt I had drawn some pictures of different animated characters and I think I had drawn out the animation process but the centerpiece of that uh, social studies project was a big full map of Disneyland based on what I had found in that National Geographic uh, uh, article I do remember that I had gone through a lot of green markers to fill in all of the green space that was in there. But it was this big uh, poster of, big map of Disneyland. And uh, that was probably where I really got into studying out the parks and all the details and how things flowed and fit together and so forth. I, the project was actually pretty successful because uh, my teachers had me go from room to room and present. Uh, what I had done and there seemed to be some interest but the interest in fourth or fifth grade was a lot different than the interest in sixth grade and I'll get to that in a few minutes. Uh, that year with my newfound interest in Disney I asked my parents if we could go to Disneyland and we had already been a couple of times again my earliest memory with my father as a very young individual and then I remember also an experience not long after Small World opened up. So we're looking at 65, 66, somewhere in that neighborhood. And then there was also, um, I remember the summer that the Haunted Mansion opened up. And I was too scared to go on that attraction. So we waited infinitely while my brothers, older brothers, stood in line for what was probably a three-hour wait that summer. Uh, to get onto that attraction. but So I had some memories of that, but now we're in 1972, 73, in that time period, and I asked if we could go to the parks. And so we were actually staying in San Diego. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. We were going to San Diego and staying at a little beach place that my parents had found in La Jolla. And they said, yeah, we'll take a day and we'll drive up to... Disneyland. And let me tell you, um, I was so excited uh, by this trip. This was uh, when I got there that year. That year, uh, the Country Bear Jamboree had opened either that year or the year prior, and so had the Main Street Electrical Parade, both amazing and fantastic. And this was the first time I went on the Haunted Mansion and did other attractions, and uh, it was a vacation to remember. Um, and by the way, one of the other cool things about that vacation is the house we stayed in um, had uh, LPs of different Disney record albums. And so I spent a lot of time during that vacation and listening to LPs. And I, while I was there, I actually got an LP of the Haunted Mansion and of the Main Street Electrical Parade and of the Country Bear Jamboree. And I was on my way to, I just, that, I love the music of Disney. That is one of the things I absolutely enjoy is the music of the parks. It speaks to me in a way that I just can't describe. And I've loved it ever since that, that first um, major trip. Uh, that was a fantastic experience. But the next year was turbulent, partly because, you know, kids at that age, as you kind of go into sixth grade, they're kind of about ready to be cool, whatever cool looks like in sixth grade. But I can tell you what cool didn't look like was Disney. And I was, 
I wanted to spend every waking moment practice drawing Disney characters and things like uh, I'd gotten the um, the booklet to Pirates of the Caribbean. So I was practicing drawing the pirates out and and the the Mad Hatter. I got really good at a, at a three quarter profile of the Mad Hatter and even a Valus and so forth. And I was really into this, but to most kids in sixth grade, you kind of look kind of weird. You, I was that nerdy guy, I guess. But that was the thing I loved. And I, I just focused my energy and heart on it. Um, and I also begged my parents if we could please go to Disneyland the following summer. Well, no, no, no. My parents started getting really concerned that I was too much into that Disney thing. And my brother, my younger brother, had, had, um, had um, uh, asked if we could go to Universal Studios. So instead of going to Disneyland that summer, we went to Universal and I was not a happy camper. That seemed like the worst summer ever, that we could be so close, having gone this summer vacation to California and we didn't go to Disneyland. So I swore in my wrath that that would never occur again. And so what I did going into seventh grade was I took up a lawn mowing business. I started with mowing my, the yards at my house and then my grandparents' uh, yard. I started mowing and then I took up um, some, some uh, neighbors and people I knew at church. And, and in time, I built up this business, mowing yards. And... Uh, I saved my money carefully and prudently to be able to take care of, of paying the entire amount to drive out to California. I paid for the gas. I paid for the hotel. I know I paid for my tickets. I'm not sure I paid for anybody else's tickets. I was kind of like, okay, you guys pay for yourself if you want to go in the parks. Of course, tickets back then were like, what, $350, $450 for a booklet of, uh, of 8 or 12 and, uh, and so it wasn't that much. Um, but I worked, and mind you, mowing lawns in Phoenix, Arizona, you had to get up pretty early to avoid the heat. It was, it was work, and I didn't make more than 350 or 450 on many of those, those yard jobs, but I worked throughout the year to save enough money to take my family to Disneyland. And the place we say stayed that summer was... Uh, the Howard Johnson's Hotel. And bless you, Howard Johnson's, you gave me like the best room in the whole hotel. I don't know if my dad had kind of worked it out with them or something when he went to check in because I wasn't, I don't remember being part of the check-in process. But we had the top floor center room overlooking uh, Disneyland, which back in that time you could actually see um, the Astro Jets, and you could see the Matterhorn Mountain. You could see a lot of features because the trees hadn't grown up so high and so forth. And so we had this amazing view and we stayed. Uh, we drove out there um, the first day and then we stayed two nights and then we drove back on the third day. And I thought I had gone to heaven. The only thing that I thought that could be more perfect and staying at the Howard Johnson's Hotel is that I realized that there was something called the Disneyland Hotel. 
And oh my gosh, now I have new goals in my life. And so back to the lawn mowing business, I am working and working and working to save the money. And by the way, it didn't all go to that. Sometimes I would get a few extra dollars and I'd buy some LPs. I'd go to the Smitty's grocery store or the local pharmacies for the smaller LPs, not the pharmacy, but the drugstore um, or uh, or the, the hardware store. I don't know. Don't ask why the hardware store had the had the Disneyland LPs, but they had the smaller ones. The bigger ones I could find at Smitty's. Um, I also started a collection, which I still have today, of GAF view masters. That I after I would mow my grandma's yard, I would take the money from that and bike over in the opposite direction of my house to Walgreens. And there on this carousel stand where um, were GAF view masters of Disneyland and shortly to become Walt Disney World. Those started coming up. By the way, my father had a real estate business. And so, you know, people with their own businesses, they, they collect magazines like Time and Newsweek. I remember sitting on the floor of my bedroom one day, kind of drawing or sketching. My dad came in and he dropped uh, the opening uh, week issue or, or the, an issue of Time magazine that showed the opening week of Walt Disney World. Oh my goodness, this opens up a whole new idea. And so I'm starting to investigate this. And mind you, there's no internet back then. There's no way to just, you didn't call up and say, by the way, how much is this gonna cost? You had to write Disney. I would write Disney letters and they would send me back brochures. I remember that um, to stay, well, we stayed at the Disneyland Hotel that following summer. That was a glorious $50 a night, big money. And I'm paying for two nights. So that was about $50. I remember opening at Contemporary was $35 a night at that hotel. The, so the cost of staying at Walt Disney World were not very expensive. But the airfare to get you from Arizona out to Florida, that was equal to what the airfare is pretty much today. This was... Um, uh, in the early days when um, the pricing was so totally different with airlines and and it was just very expensive. I remember it looked about $450, $500 per person to fly from Phoenix to Florida. And that was a forbidden amount of money, not just to a guy mowing a lawn, but to my parents and family, that was a lot of money. And, and the drive out there, I'd calculate how many days it would take to drive. I was just, there was no way to see how I would get to Walt Disney World anytime soon. But that's okay. I'm on Phoenix. I am saving up my money. I'm going to Disneyland and I could not have been happier collecting things on LPs and my Viewmasters and my maps of Disneyland. When I get there, I'm in a really good place. In fact, after that second year, saving money for my lawn mowing job, I actually, um, I think my parents just gave in and they started um, staying in Newport. Uh, well, it didn't, help, it didn't help that I remember one summer in San Diego, we went by a jack-in-the-box and this guy was dressed up in a gorilla suit and with a sign that said, Phoenix, go home. And, uh, and that was kind of funny because I noticed that when I was on the beach, 
uh, on Mission Beach or, or um, Ocean Beach or La Jolla Beach, I'd find all my school friends. I mean, we all must have gone to San Diego and every house was just rented out um, in San Diego. So anyway, long story short, we started going to Newport Beach and um, most summers I actually um, would take a bus that um, a, a local bus that would pick you up in uh, Newport Beach and take you all the way down Harbor Boulevard and then drop you off at Disneyland. One year we had a camper and I don't think I was more than 14, 15 at this point, maybe 16. But we were staying at a, a campground in Oceanside, which is halfway, if you're not familiar with California, halfway between LA and San Diego. We were staying at, um, at this campground and I asked my dad if I could take a Greyhound bus. I had figured this out. You could take a Greyhound bus from a station in Oceanside all the way up to about a half a mile away from Disneyland. And sure enough, my dad and my parents trusted me like totally. And I was surprised the things they allowed me to do. But as a, here I am a 15 year old or so, he dropped me off at this bus stop at like 6, 6.30 in the morning and and filled with sailors and I don't know who else in this uh, bus stop. But anyway, took the bus all the way out there and then I had to walk. It was like a 20 minute walk over to the gates of the park to actually go in. But I spent the whole day and then afterwards, and this, by the way, I had no cell phone. I had no way to contact them. I just had to make sure I got back to the bus stop at the right time. It was like 6.30 in the evening, and then I took the bus back, and he picked me up at the dicing. I'm surprised I got away, but this was my youth growing up. I loved Disney, and every chance I could go to Disneyland, I would do that. Now, added to that is I got into high school. My interest kind of grew a little bit, and one of the things that I really got into was theater. And while I enjoyed acting, and in fact was the Mad Hatter in our production of Alice in Wonderland, the thing I loved best was designing and developing sets. I was using these graphic art skills, and in fact I got a job doing yellow page ads at 16. If you remember the yellow pages, somebody had to draw those ads, and I was paid per ad, did not make much money on that puppy. But I did develop these artistic skills. And I did the set for Alice in Wonderland. And I took all of the themes from that. Um, I took the whole look and feel from Mary Blair's drawings of a, of a, of a golden book, Alice in Wonderland a story um, that Disney had. And I love that. In fact, I've got to include in the show notes a picture of this, uh, of this set. I am very proud of all of the intricacies of this Wonderland set that I did. But this was my, this was high school and I was into theater and music and, and grew and learned so much from that. At the same time, um, every summer we somehow managed to get over to Disneyland. I went, uh, grad night, we went um, uh, from my high school, Sunny Slope High School out to, uh, Disneyland where you would enter in. Well, actually we had dinner at Knott's Berry Farm and, and did um, rides there. And then at midnight you came into Disneyland and then you left at like 7 a.m. in the morning. These were great years. And I loved my Disneyland years. 
uh, during that time. That said, at some point, you got to go to college. And I did. I headed out to uh, BYU. I had an opportunity to study out there. And, um, and then after that, I served uh, a mission for my church uh, down in Colombia and South America. So there was this gap of time where for four or five years, I didn't have a chance. In fact, the last thing I did was um, I was at, I saw Big Thunder Mountain practically ready to open. I have no recall that I actually rode Big Thunder um, prior to heading out to college. Maybe I did. It seemed to me fresh when I finally got back there. But mind you, I'm kind of getting into, I thought maybe I would go, oh, I should tell you this story. I thought I would go because of my theatrical experience and so forth. I thought I would go into film and television. And I thought my job, my role was to save Disney from the terrible problems it was having in studio. If you looked at the films of the 1970s, you would understand why it needed to be saved. I mean, I love Pete's Dragon and I love um, the black hole in its own way. And I love some of these movies, but they were disasters in the box office. I actually wrote Ron Miller, who at that time was uh, head of the studios and asked, told him that my desire was to study film and to be a film producer someday at at Disney. And so I wrote him and sure enough, he wrote back and granted me the opportunity of visiting the Walt Disney Studios. That was, that was the coolest thing. Now, mind you, it was the coolest thing in the sense that I had never been to Disney Studios before in Burbank. Conversely, there was not a worse time to be at the Disney Studios in Burbank. I remember that the ceiling was falling through in the waiting area where we were waiting for our tour. It looked like this studio was beginning to rot, literally. Um, I remember a couple of key things, one of which was we saw this lot where all these um, Herbie the love bug parts were all um, kind of heaped together like a junkyard lot. Um, most of the sound stages we could not go into because of a top secret film. Yes, we're talking Black Hole at that point. That was they're going to be their saving grace for not uh, having done, having turned down uh, Star Wars. And, uh, and so we didn't get to go in the studios. Did go in the back lot. They had just torn down the Mary Poppins portion, but they had... Um, Put up a set for North Avenue Irregulars. Yeah, that's that's um, that's a biggie. But the Zorro set was still back there. Remember going through the tunnel that connected between um, the animation studio and the ink and paint. It was still an incredible experience. It was a once in a lifetime experience. But and so I was committed that I was going to go to college and get an education and become a film producer. So fast forward several years into the early 80s and I've gone off to college and I've gone on a church mission on the streets of Columbia. I've come back 
and I'm not feeling the motion picture thing. Took a film class, it's not working. Did teleprompter for a news program, and I just ruined every news program. And it just was not working. At the same time, I find this amazing woman. And I knew not three dates into this that this was the woman that I needed to marry. And she has changed my life ever since. She has given me focus. She has given me a reason for being. She has given me direction. And I fell in love. I took her home to meet my parents over Christmas. And my family had moved, a long story there, my family had moved and we were now in another home and then the one I had grown up in, but still uh, in Arizona, in the greater Phoenix area. But my love of all things Disney had been collapsed down to a couple of boxes while I was away in South America. And yet she's looking at these boxes and going, so you like Disney? And I go, yeah, kind of, yeah. And she's like, oh, oh okay, well, I've been to Disneyland too, so it's all right. She had no idea how much I love Disneyland. And I didn't want to tell her. I didn't want to lose her. And so I was fearful. It was the 80s. I didn't think it was a cool thing to really like Disney. In fact, as we got ready to marry, you know, the idea of going on a honeymoon to Disneyland, that was a brand new concept that hadn't even gone out of the gate. And so we ended up staying at my um, stepfather's timeshare. Um, my father had passed on and my mother had remarried. And my stepfather had this wonderful timeshare in Eastern Arizona and it was beautiful, but it wasn't Disneyland. And so the first summer, a year after we were married, I wanted to go to Disneyland. We had a little money. Um, we were expecting our first child. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money. We we ended up sleeping in a tent in a campground in Vegas on the on the asphalt in the middle of summer. It was a miserable mess. But I had the chance to go back to Disneyland, and they were celebrating their thirtieth anniversary, and they had this um, machine that would give out. Um, a prize to everyone. Most people just got pins. One person of the day got a car and everything in between, including free tickets to the park. And so people were selling these tickets in the park. And I remember having gone five years without being at Disneyland and so excited to be back. And this person came up to us and said, hey, do you want this ticket? I'll sell it to you at this lower price. And next thing I know, I made this transaction, but then I realized I didn't have the money to buy the rest of the tickets. It was a mess and we had to go back to Downey where we were staying to go get the rest of our money back then. And I thought I would never get to Disneyland. But we did get to Disneyland after these five or so years and the new Fantasyland had been built and it was beautiful and it was amazing. And I just like returned back home. At the same time, I was trying to figure out what to do for a living because I just didn't feel like film and television were it. I had been introduced to the business of instructional design, which is training and development, particularly in the corporate arena. And I thought, well, you know, Disney, they have a training division. Training division. Maybe I could work for them. That was the Disney University. And I remember writing a Barbara Duncan 
at uh, the Disneyland University. She allowed me the following year to take a tour of the Disneyland University. I was so excited. I started looking, I started going in that field and started getting an advanced degree, went through a bachelor's and then to an advanced degree in the business of training and development and instructional design. And I ended up getting a uh, internship for Southern California Edison. So for about three, four months, I was in LA, ended up getting an annual pass. I was like at Disneyland two or three times a week, just being back in the park and experiencing it again as, as I had never had before. But one of the challenges with a graduate degree is I had to figure out what my thesis was going to be. And I couldn't figure it out. And I'd finished all my classwork and I finally decided I, I needed to go get a job. And I had a job offer down in Tucson, Arizona. So we moved down there, but I hadn't finished my degree, my master's. I still had to finish the thesis. I still had to figure out what the thesis was. And I remember my professor and I was laying there on my bed one morning. My professor said, do something you have absolute passion about because it's going to be a bear to write and only something you absolutely love will will get done. And I had started some other thesis topics, but it had not worked. And I sat there thinking, what would I write about? And then it came to me, what if I wrote about Disney educational media? Well, that would take doing some study at the Disney archives. So I wrote a letter to Dave Smith Bless his heart, he gave me access to the archives and I started making trips and I started doing research and the very first book I wrote was my thesis, which is an historical descriptive study of Disney educational media as informative and entertaining. Terrible title. Nobody's read the book. There's only three copies, one at the university, one in my possession, and one somewhere very, very deep in the Disney archives. Um, but it gave me a chance to be, uh, to see Disney. And I was, we were working and living in Tucson. I saw this uh, summer show where they were, um, the Beach Boys were playing Kokomo on the sands of the new Disney's Grand Floridian Resort. They had this new resort called the Caribbean Beach Resort opening up soon. They had this new ride called Maelstrom. I thought maybe now is the time to go to Walt Disney World. So we made arrangements for my wife's parents to watch our oldest daughter, um, Kath was expecting our second son. We took a plane and flew out to Florida in 1988, in the fall of 88, stayed at the brand new Caribbean Beach Resort, saw Epcot, saw the Magic Kingdom, spent a week there, had an incredible experience, got on the plane, came back and thought, well, that was fantastic. Maybe in 10 years, we'll get to do it again. I got back home and found out that the contract that we were working on, it was a, we were doing um, training for A7 pilots. I was an instructional designer developing training and development. 
And that contract had come to a quick end and I needed to find another job. Well, I didn't know where to look, but they offered me, the same company offered me a job in Little Rock, Arkansas. Well, I'm sitting there saying to myself, there is no way I am going to Little Rock, Arkansas. That is officially halfway between California and Florida. Who would go to Little Rock, Arkansas? But they said, look, it so happens that we are bidding on a project on the panhandle of Florida and we think we have a huge possibility of getting it because we're already doing the same aircrew training for C-130 aircraft in Little Rock. If we get the Florida contract, we'll take you out to Florida. Well, I had no other offer. So we took the risk of moving for the first time from out west to the middle of the country. And guess what? They didn't get the contract. And now I was stuck in Little Rock, panicked, that I was in the middle of nowhere. I had another offer to move to Dallas. That ended up being about a two year experience there. I finally finished my thesis and graduated with my master's. But then at the end of it, I thought, I am not going to live my life in Dallas. This, the freeway system was crazy and so forth. I started looking for jobs and sure enough, that same job on the Panhandle of Florida became available with another company. I interviewed, I got the job, and on the week of my 30th birthday, we moved to Fort Walton Beach, Florida, on the Panhandle. I'm thinking, wow, I have made it. I am in Florida, this is cool. We were actually just half a block away of technically from the beach. Took a little longer to drive there, but I spent my almost every day running on the beach. I ended up taking up windsurfing. It was fantastic. And we are just the drive away from Walt Disney World, right? Well, not quite right. It's like seven, eight hours still from Fort Walton. Yeah, panhandle downtown and so forth. It was crazy. But we did make a couple of trips to Walt Disney World and we were excited for it. And so we, we, uh, did that occasionally and then that contract seemed to come to an end and I'm thinking okay I got to find a gig down in Orlando to see if I can't move there so I started to make contacts with everyone ended up meeting up with an individual who was a member of my church who said who somebody told me knew a lot of people who worked for Disney so I got on the phone with him he lived in Orlando I started talking to him 40 minutes later I'm thinking this is a job interview and and I finally get broke in the conversation. He said, you know, I, there are a couple of people I can introduce you to. However, I have a water park in Orlando, Florida, and I am in need of a director of operations. And I think you might be a really good fit with your training and development and your sense of customer service. I, would you be interested? Well, that moved us to Orlando, Florida about 27 years ago. And uh, I worked the first couple of years for a water park that nobody seems to remember anymore called Watermania. Actually, was one of the bigger water parks in the country, one of the few that actually was open year round. But it was in competition with some very serious water parks, not just Wet and Wild, which was the granddaddy of water parks, the original water park, but also the great. Typhoon Lagoon and Blizzard Beach. Um, in fact, actually Blizzard Beach was being built as I was there. I had a chance to actually tour it um, during the construction phase. 
and um, it was an it was a great experience working for water. It was a crazy experience. It was I was a big fish in a very small um, uh, swimming pool. Um, you did everything. That was a good thing. I learned so much. But I'm telling you, when you have to close out a park at two o'clock in the afternoon and you got a hundred people who are all in line wanting their money back because of the park being closed for thunderstorms, you just, and then you have two more thunderstorms like that before you close at the end of the evening. You learn a lot about customer service and handling guests and so forth. It was a powerful, tough learning experience, but I learned the business of running a park and it was a great experience. The only problem was, is it wasn't a Disney experience. And so after a couple of years, I said, guys, I gotta kind of move on. Now I had been working on how to get a job at Disney. I had come up with this idea that if I could show them some example of my creativity and ability to, to think out of the box, well, they'd want to hire me, right? And I'd kind of heard the story of Tony Baxter kind of developing ideas and concepts and kind of showcasing those and how he eventually became an Imagineer. I wasn't looking for an Imagineering role per se, but I saw this possibility of showcasing. There was this idea that Mike Eisner had presented in the 90s of doing something called the Disney Institute and also something else called the American Workplace. Now, all I had exposure to was about a short sentence or two for each, and I really didn't understand what they had in mind for either of those two. But I took those concepts and I combined them and created the designs for a brand new theme park called the Disney Institute and American Workplace. And I'll show you some images on the show notes page. I had done a 70 page booklet outlining attractions. I had done these 3D, um, this, these graphics outlining the whole map. You know, I love maps, right? And I had done this whole, this whole showcase of what this would look like. And then I looked for an opportunity to, to see if I could show people what this would look like. That opportunity came to me because of a good friend at church who happened to work for what was then the vice president of um, Disney University professional development programs. And I got an opportunity to meet with her. But the day I met with her, she wasn't available. And so I ended up meeting the second person in charge, a woman named Frankie, who I eventually later became good friends. But I came with my little portfolio and as I started to show this, she said, are you going to show me something? I said, yes, it's kind of this. And she goes, yeah, no, you can't show that to me. Legal doesn't allow me to show this. So all of this effort I had made to build this thing out and I didn't have any chance of showcasing this. And I was devastated. In fact, she basically said, you know, I'm not sure why we would hire someone like you. I don't know that you're really a right fit for the kind of work we do. And I was just hurt. So with that, I 
had another job going on doing some military style contract with training and development and it kept us going kept us fed and it was good money but i really wanted to work for disney turned out i had another opportunity to meet up with a guy and that guy introduced me and mind you much of what i had done in these years working these military contracts was not traditional training and development, although we did classroom training as well. Much of it was online learning or what was known as computer-based training, multimedia training using laser discs. In fact, I was cutting laser discs out at, at Disney's Hollywood Studios in their uh, post-production department because they were one of the few places you could go to get a laser disc cut. And I, had a number of introductions and it introduced me to what was the Disney Multimedia Group, a group that was housed upstairs above Italy in Epcot in this obscure little office. Um, a great little team of people. They needed someone who would work with marketing and sales to develop the first online module. Some, the first interactive module that would allow you to click on maps of Disney World and of hotels and of hotel rooms and see the pictures of the rooms and so forth. And this thing had never, if you think about clicking on a map now of Walt Disney World or going through images, none of that had been developed at this point. That was a totally new concept. They came to me and said, can you do this? I said, yes. They said, well, our sales reps need to be able to go out to um, events and sell people on conventions and the kind of parties we can host at the parks and the golf. I mean, I got it down to your list of, of um, uh, breakdowns per, um, uh, per hole on the golf courses. I showcased um, parks and what you could do in events. I showcased every every convention hotel and the breakdown of spaces. And this is what it looks like with rounds. And this is what it looks like with theater seating. I broke down the rooms themselves. I broke down everything and created this, worked on it for about six months and, um, and loved this job. It was a great job. I was housed upstairs above I played the palace, so to speak, in the top of this Venetian palace. I was three feet away from this uh, very large three-foot speaker that blared out Italian arias all the day long. And I cannot listen into an Italian aria without thinking of my sitting there next to this speaker all day long. Um, but I put on my headset and do the best I can. And, and I worked on this online project, the first interactive media tool that Walt Disney World ever had. In the process, my same friend who I knew from church, who was this, she, every year, her, her boss, the vice president of Disney University Professional Development Programs, she would take her out for Secretary's Day. And that time came around and, and my friend said, uh, rather than taking me out to lunch, would you please do me a favor and go over to Epcot and meet this guy? And so Valerie Oberly, who was the vice president at that time, um, 
took the advice of my friend um, uh, Diane Roland and came and visited me one lunch day at the top of Italy. And she spent about 25, 30 minutes looking at what I was developing for marketing and sales. And then she left. And about two hours later, one of her brand new directors showed up at the door and also spoke to me and looked at what I was creating. And while there were some other views, basically, I now had a job officially as a Disney cast member for the Walt Disney World Company. Not a contractor. I was now going to officially be uh, a leader of new media development at what was Disney University Professional Development. It was going to be a whole new world. I think I said something at the beginning of the podcast about kind of overviewing the six decades or so more or less of my experience with Disney and yet we haven't even gotten to three and a half decades and we haven't even really gotten into my career at Disney, much less all that comes after that. I think I need to save that for another podcast, um, hopefully before the 200th podcast, but at some point I'll share the rest of the story, a story that continues to be played out even today. I have to say though, even before I worked for the Walt Disney Company, I have always loved my life and my experience with Disney from my early years to Disneyland to uh, moving to Florida and being in the backyard of Walt Disney World. I have been so blessed. It's been an experience that required a lot of crazy tenacity, whether it was mowing yards or creating some kind of uh, theme park design that would get the attention of people uh, and try to get a job. But, but I wouldn't have changed it for the world. And I'm so grateful for the experiences I've had and for the family I've been able to, to enjoy with that. And we haven't even started about the family. So, so lots more to come. Thank you for listening. I, I, you know, when I was told you really need to share something about yourself, I said at the outset to this consultant, I said, you know, I, I don't feel like that, that the podcast host should be the star of the show. I feel that Disney is the star. The parks are the star. And the individual said, yeah, but they need to know you. And so Forgive me for the time I've taken, but I just wanted to share something about me so you knew a little bit about my love of all things Disney and how that came about. And hopefully, as you listen to these podcasts and as you see my websites, you'll now have some context for why I love all things Disney. Again, thank you for joining us. We appreciate you being a part of this podcast. So much more to come. This is number 100, but we have just got started. And we appreciate you being a part of it. Remember, in the words of Sinbad's storybook voyage, always follow 
the compass of your heart, no matter where it takes you. Have a great day. We'll see you real soon. Thank you.